0: Hello, this is William Fink, and this is Christogeneous Saturdays. This program is being pre recorded for Saturday, November 13th, 2021. And once again, it is Wednesday morning, and we have our friend Truthvids here with us to discuss his 100 Proofs that the Israelites were White. This is part 60 of the series. I've never done a 60 part series before. It might go 70 or 80 parts, I'm certain. In our last presentation, we discussed the words of the Apostles of Christ, which demonstrate that they were addressing the 12 tribes, and not merely some church. Once that is elucidated, it also becomes clear that the church is a gathering from people of those 12 tribes, and not a disparate collection of mere believers who claim to be Christians even in spite of the words of Christ who said that he only came for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. In that last presentation, we found that the name of Israel still belongs to those same twelve tribes, that it is they alone who would wash their garments in the blood of the Lamb and that they are also the subject of the Song of Moses. Now we shall examine the Song of Moses and what that means, because if that is the song which is being sung in the Revelation, then that also can only apply to those same ancient 12 tribes of Israel. Hello, Truth Fids. Thank you for being here, and praise Yahweh.
1: Praise Yahweh. Bill, thanks for having me. Hello yeah yeah so here once again we're seeing essentially prophecies that talk about uh israel in the end times right that they will prevail in the end and and nothing of uh, other people or gentiles or replacement as you said and um you know if you understand the purpose of israel that um, adam was created to trample down upon the other races and essentially spread out and take the whole earth but unfortunately they failed And they failed again after the flood. So for that reason, Yahweh created Israel, right? He's not just going to keep flooding the world over and over. This time he created Israel. He gave us additional laws, promised to always be with us and our purpose, whether we'll be the ones who ultimately destroy uh, all the other races or Christ will do it. Uh, himself or or he'll lead us or whatever, but ultimately it will be done and there'll be only ashes left, right? And the Song of Solomon is singing the victory of Israel prevailing uh, in the end, right, Bill?
0: Absolutely. And, and, and that reveals, you just revealed what what might be material for another potential proof. I, I'm not certain yet. I would have to look at it. But the enemies of God are not mere unbelievers. Adam was to have dominion over all the beasts and animals and everything else on, on the planet, basically, if you want to read Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, it, in that universal manner, right? So he was to, that word that means, that, that's translated as have dominion in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, more literally means to tread down upon something, to dominate it, to rule over it in that sense of, of absolute superiority over it. So the enemies of God are not mere unbelievers. We we see in the land of Canaan that there were Rephame and Nephilim and, and Kenites and, and other people in Genesis chapters 14 and 15, the Zuzim, which are roving creatures, people described as roving creatures. So none of these had a genealogy from the tribes of Noah in Genesis chapter 10. None of them did. And that means that the Bible doesn't really account for their genealogy. In examinations of scripture we see that they are all associated and can only be accounted for where in Genesis chapter 6 and I won't translate the word giants right it it says there were nephilim in the earth in those days and after and that word nephilim very properly means fallen ones so these enemies of God that are sung about, that they are the subjects of His vengeance in the Song of Moses, they were here from the beginning. It is not explained how they got here in Genesis chapter one or two or three or four or five, but that explanation is made by Christ in Genesis chapter in in I'm sorry in Revelation chapter twelve. And we find in Matthew chapter 13 that Christ had come to reveal things kept secret from the foundation of the world. And that is certainly, at that time, the context was the parable of the wheat and the tares. And Revelation chapter 12 is basically explaining the parable of the wheat and the tares and the presence of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3. So these enemies are not merely non-believers of the Adamic race. They're not. And Paul proves that further in Acts chapters 14, where he addressed Lycaonians, and Acts chapter 17, where he addressed Athenians. And they are not Israelites. He did not speak to them about Jesus. He didn't speak to them about reconciliation. Rather, he spoke to them from the perspective of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 8, which we're going to see here this evening, or Genesis chapter 10, that they too are the children of God, but they simply weren't chosen and and they weren't Israelites who had that relationship of a covenant and a wife-husband relationship as a nation with God. They didn't need, they were never, the Athenians were never given the laws of God. They were Ionian Greeks. They were Javan. Javan is the word translated as Ionian in ancient manuscripts. It was Yavana, and it was translated in the Septuagint as Iowan and that was ultimately contracted to what we see as Ionian. The Jepetites were descendants of Moses and therefore of Adam, but they simply weren't Israelites. So Paul didn't speak to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17 about covenants or reconciliation or the law. He only spoke to them and informed them that there is only one God and that men would be judged by their works in the resurrection of the dead. And, and they mocked him for that, that they thought little of him for that. However, if you read their own literature back in the 6th and 5th centuries BC, they did believe in the resurrection of the dead. They did believe in the eternal existence of the souls of the dead in Hades. So their beliefs were similar to to those of the Hebrews and fit into the paradigm which is seen in the New Testament that we're eternal and, and that Adamic men, I should say, are eternal and will be judged by their works and will suffer the consequences or live by the consequences of their deeds in the future. So... If Paul was speaking, and and in Acts chapter 14, he said in times past, God permitted every nation of man to go their own way, all except the children of Israel, of course, to see if they would seek him. Therefore, they have also a level of reconciliation with God as Christ had said, that the men of Nineveh, who were Syrians, who were, who were Semites, who were descendants of Shem, but who were not Israelites, would be in the resurrection. And also the Queen of the South, using one woman as an example of, of the tribe of Sheba, which is of the tribe of Ham, of the descendants of Ham. So we see that these other Adamic people also have a, a role to fill in the overall plan of Yahweh our God, even if they're not Israelites. But these enemies upon whom he's going to take vengeance are a different party, and they don't have that role. As Revelation chapter 12 explains, they were here from the beginning, but their presence was never revealed. Their origin was never revealed until Christ
1: yeah, and the uh, Assyrians were even the enemies of uh, Israel, right? And, but the fact is they all still get forgiveness in the end, which shows that Yahweh will forgive all Adamites, right? Or, or at least, you know, they'll all be in the resurrection, right, ultimately. But as for the non-whites, there, there is no forgiveness. There is no afterlife, right? Well, well,
0: that's right, and it could be stated that way because that they all men have suffered, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5. All men has suffered for the sin of our first father. And and that's a paradigm that that we should understand more deeply also, because your misdeeds in this life do affect generations of, of your descendants, even if they are not directly punished for your sins. They still suffer from the effects of your sins. So we see that it is a statement of, fact in describing the circumstances of our entire Danic race, whether we are Israelites or not. So they're not really going to be forgiven because they were never given a law, right? The only people that need to be forgiven are the children of Israel who were given a law because, as Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, sin is not imputed where there is no law. However, That They still learn from the same example, and they are still eternal spirits. As Solomon said in Wisdom of Solomon, chapter 2, God created man to be immortal. The original plan of God, in spite of the misdeeds of man, the original plan of God is not going to fail. God does not fail. So these other races, who are actually corruptions of his creation, From the Nephilim, or the Fallen Ones, that's the only other explanation for their existence. That's the only biblically viable explanation for their existence. These other races are beasts, and and they have, pejoratively in Scripture, they are called beasts over and over again. And even though Yahweh God uses them to punish us in this life, no, they're not a Danic man, and therefore they have no future. And and that is why in Matthew chapter 25, the goat nations have their destiny in the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That is why that is their destiny, Because that was their origin.
1: Yeah. Um, So so I think I explained that badly. But um, everything you said uh, answered it. But what I meant, I was talking more about the angle of um, Yahweh only talks about complete vengeance and destruction on all the other races for what they've done To Israel, but he never says he wants vengeance on um, Assyrians or the Assyrians for invading Israel, or or, you know the other tribes. Although he he would punish them, he doesn't say he's going to totally obliterate them in the afterlife, right? Absolutely. When you look at that, you have to ask why? Why? Why will he absolutely destroy? all these, um, you know, Canaanites, but he doesn't say the same thing to the Assyrians. There must be something in the race. They must have a different ultimate destiny, right? That's the only way that makes sense.
0: Well, absolutely. And and that's apparent in Isaiah where we read the word of Yahweh concerning Israel. and, And in Isaiah chapter 10, O Assyrian, the rod of my anger. And the staff in their hand, meaning the superiority and and rulership which the Assyrians had at the time, is my indignation. And that's Isaiah chapter 10, verse 5. And Yahweh goes on to say, I will send him, meaning the Assyrian, against the hypocritical nation. So the Assyrians were used as a vehicle of Yahweh's executing his vengeance, his, his wrath against the children of Israel for their sin. But that sin and that wrath also result in promises of reconciliation. On the other hand, and, and it's the same dynamic with the Babylonians a, a couple of hundred years later on, or 150 years later, for their pride, Yahweh also brought down Assyria Assyria itself, and that's prophesied in the same chapter of Isaiah, and it would be the children of Israel in verse 17 of the same chapter, speaking of the Assyrian for his pride, and the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame, and it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. That was fulfilled in 612 BC, when the Scythians and Chimerians, along with Groups of Babylonians and Persians, because the Assyrians were ruling over them, and Medes had all destroyed all of the cities of Assyria, perhaps in 612 BC, I believe. So... Even though the Babylonians and the Assyrians were used to chastise and punish the children of Israel for their sin, Yahweh turned around and destroyed the Babylonians and the Assyrians. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the spiritual level where these Adamic people will be in the resurrection as Christ himself had explained. Now, from that, we should all as a collective group, learn the lessons of history and, and the consequences of sin and the fact that we can never rule over ourselves and that no man can justly rule over any of us, that only God can be our ruler and our king and we should all be obedient to him. That's an overall lesson. However, at the national level, we see that we can also be punished and that even the non-believing descendants of adam will be reconciled from that punishment so i hope i, I hope that's clear because it's it's not something you could just explain in two sentences but these other races have no reconciliation because they didn't come from God. They weren't born from above. That They are corruptions. Every bastard is going to be rejected. What's a bastard? A bastard is a basically a corruption of God's creation. If you are race mixed, you are the result of the corruption of God's creation. You can't urge... God, you have no grounds on, on which to appeal to God to accept you. That it wasn't your fault. You can't say that. Yeah. It,
1: and Bill, do you have any um, any new thoughts on that? Hundred and forty four thousand. I mean, I know twelve times twelve is one hundred and forty four. So, so it's linked to the twelve tribes, but we just don't really know uh, if it's just you know a figurative uh, number or if if one day there truly only will be 144,000 of us left at the end right or or whatever
0: well i think the 144,000 must be in connection with the roman empire because it's in in a it's embedded into the middle of a clear narrative of prophecy which is foretelling the fall of the roman empire in Revelation chapter 6 the narrative is not yet complete and then in Revelation chapter 7 that there's a um that there's an interlude right the last verse of Revelation chapter 6 for the great day of his wrath is come speaking about the fall of rome and that can be demonstrated but it's something that i would need several of these presentations to do but I've already done that in in my revelation commentary in in the the commentary from 2011 so in revelation 6 the last verse for who for the great day of his wrath is come and who shall be able to stand and then we see the sealing of the tribes in revelation chapter 7 and the great multitude that we discussed, which also must be dispersed Israelites later in that chapter, and then we see Revelation chapter 8 is basically returning to prophecies, which actually foretell of the fall of Rome. After the fall of Rome, then there's the Islamic invasions, and then the opening of the little book, and the wars of the Reformation. So, That's actually, as we explained in earlier of these proofs, that sequence of the identifying of those chapters and and the context of those chapters with those events in history is absolutely certain. I, I can't believe any other way that these chapters could be Interpreted because they absolutely agree in many aspects and in every aspect, but that they give us many descriptive indicators that those are the events which it is prophesying. I have no other way to interpret those chapters. So the sealing takes place before the fall of Rome and the Islamic invasions, and and even though on a spiritual level, there may be a greater significance to the identity of those of the children of Israel who were sealed, it's not the sum total of the children of Israel, and it doesn't pretend to be the sum total of those who are going to be saved, because immediately after that, it explains that great multitude of people who also must be Israelites but who had suffered in those events that are described in the surrounding chapters. So those who were sealed, I believe, were set aside and didn't endure that same suffering. Now, how that happened in history, I can only conjecture. I can't explain. But later on in in Revelation chapter 14, just before this description of the singing of the Song of Moses, we see those 144,000 mentioned again. A lamb stood on the Mount Sion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written in their foreheads. So were those 144,000 sealed in Revelation chapter 7, were they a people who did not yet live at that time? And that's also a possibility. That, that was a be prophecy a in some.
1: That um, their descendants would make it to the end uh, of those 144,000, they would be ensured that uh, their descendants would make it to the finish line to when Christ returns?
0: Well, well that's a possibility, but I would not personally conjecture that. I really don't like to conjecture, but sometimes we're forced to imagine something may mean one thing or the other, right? And I'm just saying that it's possible that that sealing of 144,000, 12,000 from each tribe of Israel, which occurs in Revelation chapter 7, is a sealing of people who were not yet born, but who would... who would be alive at a future point. And and here we have them in Revelation chapter 14. And Revelation chapter 14 comes after the fall of Rome and the Islamic invasions of Europe and, and the subsequent history.
1: So, so essentially, you, you should know there's going to be at least 12,000 from each tribe at the end, <laughs> at the end when Christ returns, right, that none, none of the tribes are going to uh, slowly wither away or be gone. They'll all be there at the end.
0: Right. But the 144,000, and I think I mentioned this, this evening further on in my notes, I do, they sing a new song, and, and in Revelation chapter 15 we're singing the song of moses and and that's a totally different song because it's an old song and and with that we should probably start in in revelation chapter 14 we see a prophecy of 144,000 who were the first fruits of the lamb this is the same number as those who were sealed in revelation chapter 7 So in chapter 14, we read, and I looked, and lo, and this is John speaking in the first person. These are visions that were given to him to record as the revelation of Yahshua Christ. So the words actually come from Yahshua Christ through John and his experience in these visions. And I looked, and lo, a lamb stood on the Mount Sion, and with him 144,000, having his father's name written in their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven, as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of a great thunder. And I heard the voice of harpers, harping with their harps. And they sung, as it were, a new song before the throne, and before the four beasts and the elders. And no man could learn that song but the 144,000, which were redeemed from the earth. These are they which were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are they which follow the Lamb whithersoever he goes. These were redeemed from among men, being the firstfruits unto God and to the Lamb. And this group is pictured as singing a new song, which also evokes words of Yahweh written in Isaiah chapter 43, where he is admonishing the children of Israel. Remember ye not the former things, neither consider the things of old. Behold, I will do a new thing. Now it shall spring forth. Shall you not know it? I will make even a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. And of course, that path in the wilderness and those rivers in the desert are allegorical for the children of Israel, a way for the children of Israel to return to Yahweh their God and to be nourished or fed with his gospel. They're not literal, as we've discussed here recently in, in the, um, the proofs concerning the woman in the wilderness and her blindness. But in Revelation chapter 15, we see a different vision of a large group of people with harps, and it is not necessarily the same group. They are described as singing an old song, where we read, And I saw another song in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and then that had gotten the victory over the beast, and over his image, and over his mark, and over the number of his name, stand on a sea of glass, having the harps of God, of God. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the lamb, so we see that the song of the lamb is the same song as the song of Moses and, and That's a Hebrew parallelism. There's no way around that. There's no different Song of the Lamb. They sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, and the Song of the Lamb is a Hebrew parallelism, meaning that they sing the Song of Moses, the servant of God, which is also the Song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, And true, just and true are thy ways, thou king of saints. So here this group is said to sing the song of Moses. And that must be a reference to the song of Moses, which is found in Deuteronomy chapters 31 and 32. It cannot be a new song. And it cannot be anything different than the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy. So to understand it, we must go to the source. I don't know if you have anything to interject.
1: Well, even where it says, thou king of saints, that that really means uh, king of the Israelites, right? And most people don't realize, as we've said before, right? So it's clearly only about the Israelites.
0: Absolutely. King of saints, that word saint means it designates when it's spoken of people, it designates something which is sanctified and devoted to the purposes of a god. And in the ancient world, there was only one way to be sanctified and set aside for the purposes of a god. And that was to be placed on the altar of that god. That was a ritual act which sanctified you and devoted you to the purposes of that god and and men went to pagan temples and they devoted money gold silver seeking the favor of the god of the temple the ancient Greeks did this it's explained or it's that the custom is fully evident in Homer and all of the ancient Greek tragic poets and other writings, you could, in the scripture, Jephthah sacrificed his daughter. And she didn't lament her life. She lamented her virginity because it's sacrificing his daughter. He wasn't killing her. The God of the Bible despised that. He despised that act of sacrificing children to gods by killing them he was devoting her to the temple or at that time perhaps to the tabernacle in the wilderness to become a servant of the tabernacle or the temple and that would that that's a way of sanctification where you're devoted to the purposes of the temple now the pagan temples also accepted sacrifices Of women or children, or even young boys or or men, adolescent men, that they accepted those sacrifices and usually, not always, turned them into prostitutes to make money for the temple. And and that is also evident. It's evident in, in the scriptures in places, and it's also evident in the ancient Greek historians and the Greek poets. Herodotus talked about it in relation to ancient Babylon and other places. Corinth, the temple of Diana, I'm sorry, Ephesus, the temple of Diana in Ephesus was famous for that. And so were the temples in in Corinth. Corinth was very famous for its temples of prostitution. So famous that it became an adage for prostitution.
1: Was it Paul or was it the, the warning to the churches that clearly picked out Corinth for a fornication as well?
0: Well, I've, I, I believe both, right? Uh, no, not the message. Corinth wasn't one of the seven churches, but Paul of Tarsus definitely um, advised the Corinthians explicitly about fornication because Corinth was famous for it. And Corinth... A verb was formed in Greek whereby the name of Corinth had actually become a description of fornication. And let me, I I should actually take the, the moment to find this in Ludell and Scott. I know it's in here. I just don't have it all in my memory, but I'm just about there. No, I'm sorry. I probably have to go to my big ninth edition of the Liddell and Scott. Here I have the, the small one. So I'll set that aside for our next presentation because I don't want to tie up too much. But there is a verb associated with the word Corinth, Corinthiazzo or something like that, which basically is directly related to the act of prostitution that Corinth was famous for.
1: Just like how Canaanite became uh, linked to Merchant, right?
0: Right. It, it's ju- Yes, exactly. And, and it's just not accessible to me. It's not within reach. My ninth edition isn't within reach. Only my abridged L- Liddell and Scott is within reach. I apologize. But I believe I've mentioned that and cited that in ancient podcasts, in, in my older podcasts. That's a digression. Okay, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Yahweh had Moses write a song, and we read, Now therefore write ye this song for you, and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths, that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto their fathers... That floweth with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and filled themselves and waxen fat, then they will turn unto other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. Now, a thought that I wanted to finish before I was distracted with the meaning or, or with the applications of the word Corinth in regard to prostitution. The children of Israel were sanctified by Yahweh. The sanctification was, was recognized in the book of Exodus when Yahweh made his covenant at Sinai and gave them the law, but the sanctification actually happened when Isaac was placed on the altar by Abraham to be sacrificed to Yahweh. As soon as Isaac was placed on that altar, Isaac became the property of God, and Abraham no longer had parental rights over him because he was surrendering his son to God. Now, Esau was in the loins of Isaac as well as Jacob, and they from that point, both parties from that point, were the property of God, and he could do with them what he desired. That is why the the paradigm of Esau and Jacob is so critical. Understanding who the Edomites became and who the Israelites became is so critical in understanding the Bible and history. And that's how Paul spoke of, in Romans chapter 9, two vessels being made from the same lump, one for mercy, which is the children of Israel, and one for destruction which are the mixed-race children of Esau. So, from that point, back to the Song of Moses. The Song of Moses, we see from those verses, Deuteronomy chapter 31, verses 19 and 20, was actually written by God himself, which is evident where it said, Therefore write ye this song for you. So Yahweh's giving Moses the words, and he's going to write them. So the instructions continue. And it shall come to pass, when many evils and troubles are befallen them, that this song shall testify against them as a witness. Well, those evils and troubles were over their seven times of punishment, which happened over 2,520 years of history. And then there's a prophecy time of Jacob's trouble. So it's not merely discussing the troubles that would happen to them when they first began to sin in Palestine. It it goes far beyond that. So then we read. I'm, I'm sorry, I have one more comment. The fact that we have Deuteronomy today, it, it says, the, the instructions continue in verse 21. And it says that, When It it shall come to pass that when those many evils and troubles are befallen them, that this song, this song of Moses, shall testify against them as a witness. It shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed, for I know their imagination which they go about, even now, before I have brought them into the land which I swear." So Yahweh said to Moses that this song, which he was going to be given, would not be forgotten out of the mouths of the seed of the children of Israel. And the very fact that we have and we read Deuteronomy today upholds the statement that it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed, which are their children, their descendants. So then, reading further on in Deuteronomy chapter 31, Moses therefore wrote this song the same day, and taught it the children of Israel. And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge, and said, Be strong, and of a good courage, for thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear to them, and I will be with thee. And it shall come to pass, when Moses had made an end of the writing of the words of this law in the book, until they were finished, that Moses commanded the Levites, which bare the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh, saying, Take this book of the law and put it in the side of the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh your God, that it may be there for a witness against thee. For I know thy rebellion and thy stiff neck. Behold, while I am yet alive with you to stay, ye have been rebellious against Yahweh. How much more after my death? Gather unto me all the elders of your twelve tribes and your officers, that I may speak these words in their ears, which is the song of Moses that's going to be presented, it's going to be presented in the next chapter, and call heaven and earth to record against them, for I know that after my death, you will utterly corrupt yourselves and turn aside from the way which I have commanded you, and evil will befall you in the later days, looking far off into the future, because you will do evil in the sight of Yahweh to provoke him to anger through the work of your hands, and Moses spoke in the ears of all the congregation of Israel. The words of this song until they were ended. So we see that Moses was to be a witness for Yahweh against the children of Israel. The song of Moses was to be a witness and the book of the law, as Moses had stated, and the song of Moses is recorded in Deuteronomy, which word means copy of the law. It doesn't really mean second law. There's a law for the priests in Leviticus. Deuteronomy is basically a copy of the law, even though the word deuteros it is, has, it has its roots in a word that means second in Greek. The vision in Revelation chapter 15 depicts those who have not accepted the mark of the beast and who have therefore kept the commandments of Christ singing this song of Moses. Ostensibly, they are witnessing to the children of Israel who have departed from the way. They're telling them why they ended up in their particular condition.
1: So it's a repeat, right, that uh, just from Christianity, uh, you know, Europe having a, a good time where they turn to Christianity and then it all starts to go wrong, just like when Joshua led them in to the lands of Canaan, it all started to fall apart eventually, right? Same thing.
0: Well, well, right, because this is the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. And today we're doing the exact same thing that our ancient ancestors did. We were brought into new lands. We established a white nation. We began at first to expel all of the Ancient inhabitants of those lands who, who are wicked and evil in the eyes of Yahweh, who are not parties to his covenants. And then we got to a certain point where we prevailed and we failed to expel them all, just like the ancient children of Israel did in the land of Canaan. So now we're paying for that. We're paying for that today because we tolerated Negro slaves. 400 years ago, and let them live among us, and let the Jews keep importing them into the continent, because we tolerated the aboriginal so-called Indians, who, who are essentially just savages. They were, they were eating each other's babies before we came here, and not only in America, but in New Zealand with the Maori, and in Australia with the aboriginals there. It's all coming back to bite us in the proverbial ass now, just like the ancient Israelites failed to exterminate the last of the Canaanites, as they were commanded to do, and that came back to bite them in the ass. They started worshiping the gods of Canaan. And today we have Anglo-American and and Saxon or Germanic-Americans who are doing the same thing with the gods of these Native Americans. We're worshiping their gods. And, and the gods of everybody else all over the rest of the world that we permitted into our lands. Bring in the Pakistanis and, and we start worshiping Dharma and, and Hinduism. So we end up in the arms of Kali and, and I believe that's the demon of death or something like that, destruction. I don't know if you had anything else.
1: Yeah, um, we should we clearly should have um, just wiped them all out, right? I mean, when they moved into America and all the other places and things would be a lot better. And now, uh, essentially, we're being squeezed bit by bit. Um, uh, everything's basically hard. All our taxes go through um, them. They don't pay... Anything when they set up businesses. We're um, basically almost enslaved at this point, right?
0: Absolutely. We're absolutely enslaved. We just don't know it yet. Most of us don't know it yet. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 32, we see the Song of Moses itself, and it takes the entire chapter, and we're going to go through the entire chapter this evening. Give ear. O ye heavens, and I will speak, and hear, O earth, the words of my mouth. My doctrine shall drop as the rain, my speech shall distill as the dew, as the small rain upon the tender herb, and as the showers upon the grass. Because I will publish the name of Yahweh, ascribe ye greatness unto our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are judgment. A God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. They, and Moses is speaking in reference to the children of Israel who were already sinning, even in the wandering in the desert, they have corrupted themselves. Their spot is not the spot of his children. They are a perverse and crooked generation. This is what happens when you go off into paganism and race mixing. Do ye thus requite Yahweh, O foolish people and unwise? He is not thy father that had, is he not thy father that has bought thee? Has he not made thee and established thee? Remember the days of old, consider the years of many generations. Ask thy father and he will show thee; thy elders and they will tell thee. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance. When he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. For Yahweh's portion is his people, Jacob is the lot of his inheritance. Now, of course, that's a direct reference to Genesis chapter 10 and the dividing of the Adamic nations in the lands to which they were assigned in after the dispersion of Genesis chapters 10 and 11. And Moses describes the white world of his time in those nations of Genesis chapter 10. They can all be identified in history. Originally, they were all white. And later in history, the children of Israel inherited lands Or came into the possession of lands, which those original tribes in Genesis 10 did not possess, were not initially given. So, and and that's the meaning of that term concerning Peleg in Genesis chapter 10, verse 25. And unto Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided. So by that statement, we can gauge the time of the division of the tribes, which is represented in the allegory concerning the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11 where it says that the earth was divided in the days of Peleg, and it says in Genesis chapter 11 that the tribes were scattered across the earth and divided, divided by language. So those two verses, those Genesis 10.25 helps to establish when the events of Genesis chapter 11 occurred, and that is what's being referred to here approximately... 1800 years later, or seven—not not 1800 years from the time of Peleg, but 1800 years from the time of the flood, and perhaps about a thousand years from the time of Peleg. That's what's being referenced here in Deuteronomy 32, 8, in the Song of Moses.
1: So once they got numerous enough, they could start um, really spreading out, you know, to um, uh, Kush, what we'd call Saudi Arabia, and then Egypt, Ethiopia, they could go that far and really start to set up their own lands, right? Uh, apart from each other.
0: Right. And some of them may have already established a presence in certain places. And and I believe Egypt is representative of that, but there may very well have been Refain in Egypt before that time. And there was always struggle and division in Egyptian history and those different, Dynasties didn't always belong to the same race of people. So, if Jacob is the lot of the inheritance of God in Deuteronomy chapter 32, then Jacob must be the lot of the inheritance of God in Revelation chapter 15, as the people are depicted as singing this same song for a witness to the same people of Israel. It's not a song to a different audience. It's dealing with the descendants of the very same people to whom Moses had taught this song. And this helps to establish, since it's the same song of the Lamb, this helps to establish that the mission of Christ is fully consistent with the contents of this song where we read in Revelation chapter 15 that great and marvelous are thy works, Lord God Almighty, just and true are thy ways, thou King of saints. The saints are the same saints of the Old Testament to those who were sanctified for this purpose by Yahweh God in the loins of Isaac. Once again, and and of course that sanctification was manifest in the set-apart children of Israel. In Exodus chapter 19, thou shalt be a holy nation, a separate or a peculiar people. That language is describing the fact that Isaac was sanctified unto Yahweh, and Yahweh is demanding his descendants to acknowledge and and practice that sanctification by being separate from all other peoples. So once again, continuing with the song, the song of Moses, he found him in a desert land and in the waste howling wilderness. He led him about, he instructed him. He kept him as the apple of his eye. As an eagle stirs up her nest, flutters over her young spreads abroad her wings takes them bears them on her wings so Yahweh alone did lead him and there was no strange god with him he made him ride on the high places of the earth that he might eat the increase of the fields and he made him to suck honey out of the rock and oil out of the flinty rock Butter of kine and milk of sheep with fat of lambs and rams of the breed of Bashan. And goats with the fat of kidneys of wheat. And thou did drink the pure blood of the grape. Kidneys of wheat. It's not my purpose here to dissect this as a commentary, right? But Jesse Run waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxen fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook, and this is speaking of Israel collectively, and Jesu run is an epithet or an appellation which actually means upright one. It appears 3 times in Deuteronomy chapters 32 and 33 but it also appears in Isaiah 44:2 without the h it's spelled differently where jeshurun even in Isaiah chapter 44 where the children of Israel were already taken into the Assyrian captivity for the most part they are still given the same appellation or, or epithet, Jesse Run, They're still given the same name, Jesse Run. So it, it doesn't, the word of God does not change. The children of Israel were considered the upright ones in the time of Moses and remain that way in the time of Isaiah. And until this very day, not for themselves, not because they're without sin. They certainly are not without sin. They do nothing but sin. But God still sees them as upright, because they are products of his creation. But Jeshurun waxed fat and kicked. Thou art waxing fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God which made him, and lightly esteemed the rock of his salvation. A reference to some of the episodes of the Exodus. They provoked him to jealousy with strange gods, with abominations provoked they him to anger. They sacrificed unto devils, not to God, to gods whom they knew not, to new gods that newly came up, whom your fathers feared not. Of the rock that begot thee thou art unmindful, and hast forgotten God that formed thee. And when Yahweh saw it, he abhorred them, because of the provoking of his sons and of his daughters. And he said, I will hide my face from them. I will see what their end shall be, for they are a very froward generation, children in whom is no faith. They have moved me to jealousy with that which is not a God. They have provoked me to anger with their vanities, the children of Israel in their idolatry, moving God to jealousy. And I will move them to jealousy with with those which are not a people. I will provoke them to anger with a foolish nation. Now, Paul of Tarsus cited this last verse in Romans chapter 10, where he wrote from verse 19. But I say, did Israel not know? First, Moses said, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people. And by a foolish nation, I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that asked not for after me. But to Israel, he said, All day long I have stretched forth my hands unto a disobedient and gainsaying people. And there Paul also cited, in addition to this passage, from Deuteronomy chapter 32, he also cites Isaiah chapter 65, verses 1 and 2. Where it says, but to Israel, he said, that gives the impression that he was speaking to someone other than Israel in the line before that. But that's a lie. The use of the Greek particle, de, D-E, de, at the beginning of verses 20 and 21 should have been translated as then rather than but because all those passages are addressing the same children of Israel. The word is either adversative or continuative, according to Liddell and Scott. So looking at the citations in context, not the way the church teaches them, but in the context in which Paul originally cited them from the Old Testament that he was reading from. All three of the passages Paul cited here were originally made to the children of Israel. And we cannot imagine that we could substitute any other recipient of any of these words in their place. The children of Israel, lost in the wilderness and blind as to their identity, as we have discussed here recently, were not seeking Yahweh their God when they found him through the gospel of Christ. They are the disobedient and gainsaying people to whom God had reached out through that gospel. Continuing with the Song of Moses from Deuteronomy. For a fire is kindled in mine anger, and shall burn unto the lowest hell, and shall consume the earth with her increase, and set on fire the foundations of the mountains. I will heap mischiefs upon them. I will spend mine arrows upon them. Israel is going to be punished for everything they have done. They shall be burnt with hunger, and devoured with burning heat, and with bitter destruction. I will also send the teeth of beasts upon them, With the poison of serpents of the dust, the sword without and terror within shall destroy both the young man and the virgin, the suckling also with the man of gray hairs. I said I would scatter them into corners. I would make the remembrance of them to cease from among men, meaning that the children of Israel were going to be blind to their identity, but they were not going to be done away with. There are many other prophecies that Yahweh seeks to punish and correct them, but never to do away with them. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely, and lest they should say, Our hand is high, and Yahweh has not done all of this. For they are a nation void of counsel, Neither is there any understanding in them. Oh, that they were wise, that they understood this, that they would consider their later end. How should one chase a thousand, and two put ten thousand to flight? Except their rock had sold them, and Yahweh had shut them up. For their rock is not as our rock, even our enemies themselves being judges. So the focus shifts to the enemies. Were it not that I feared the wrath of the enemy, lest their adversaries should behave themselves strangely and should say, our hand is high, and the Lord has not done all this. In other words, the enemies of the people of God, thinking, not understanding that Yahweh was punishing the children of Israel, and that's what's being explained here. The enemies of God, not understanding that Yahweh, was, Yahweh himself was punishing Israel, would vaunt themselves against Israel all the more. Their rock is not our rock. The Song of Moses attests that Yahweh is not the God of other peoples. Therefore, that must also be the case when this song is sung in Revelation chapter 15, or otherwise it would be irrelevant. We cannot imagine that Christ himself would have his people singing irrelevant songs, or that this being the song of the Lamb of Christ himself, that it would be irrelevant. So the song of Moses is still relevant, even though today we are 2,500 years away from it.
1: I don't and know if you have even you want to say. It keeps how we turned away and we did this, um, even though it doesn't specifically mention them, it was the Canaanites that were corrupting our people, right? And slowly but surely they started to turn away from Yahweh and, and follow the Canaanites, right?
0: Right, and that's the following of other gods. The only reason why those other gods would still exist is because the Canaanites were not exterminated. Moses is foreseeing. Yahweh is showing Moses that so that Moses could foresee that while he's writing this. So Moses is foreseeing the corruption which would come to the children of Israel on account of, quote-unquote, other gods, which also means other races of people who worship those gods. Because without the people, there would, there would be no other gods. And right, other and today, gods... Um...
1: Without Jews, there would be no um, Big Bang theory and and, and all that, and evolution, right?
0: Right, absolutely. Uh, Other gods also means that it would be other laws and customs, contrary to the laws and customs which are dictated by our God, which we are commanded to keep by our God. So that other gods... It doesn't only refer to little wooden idols. It refers to everything that goes along with the worship or respect of those idols. And once you begin to, and this is a story throughout the Old Testament, throughout the historical narrative, we see it in Kings, in Chronicles, in Ezra, that these other gods and and their existence would constantly cause the children of Israel, to depart from the law of Yahweh and begin to practice things such as fornication and idolatry. All of the gods of the pagan nations demanded fornication and idolatry. All of the, and, and, and sodomy and things like that. It, if you read Tertullian in the 3rd century BC was describing how the pagans of his time were worshiping the genitals of the priests and that is basically the phallic worship of Baal worship and Herodotus Baal or Bell Herodotus saw as a god of Babylon, and all the women of Babylon at one time or another during their lives were required to prostitute themselves for their god, Bel, to benefit their temple. All the women, without exception. That, is, that same practice is alluded to, I believe, in Ezra. And i pointed that out in papers at Christagenia. I just don't remember which paper's offhand, but it's in some of my early essays. I've described that.
1: And we have those um bell towers everywhere. Now people have no idea, right? They just think it's some um I don't know, monument, but but it's clearly um a, a bell tower, right?
0: Well, all those phallic symbols, right? the, the... Another aspect of the pagan priesthoods was arranged sexual liaisons where and, and Herodotus and others also described this, where the priest of the temple would inform one of the young ladies of the temple, or one of the attractive women who were in the congregation of the temple, not a prostitute But a regular woman, who might be somebody's wife or daughter, the priest would inform that woman that the god desired her, and that she had to come to the temple and go up into one of the towers and lay on the bed, and the god would come down and make love to her. And this is pretty much spelled out in Herodotus and and other sources. So, some man that had lust for a particular woman would go to the priest and offer to pay him a sum of money, and he would pose as that God and make love to the woman and have sex with the woman. And the woman sounds completely Jewish, right? Oh, yeah, it's completely Jewish. It's the Jews. Their spirit is the spirit of the ancient Canaanites and Edomites. They reflect that spirit. And that's why they perpetuate those practices, only now they use modern terms for it.
1: And I think they do that with um, all all the so-called celebrities, like um, movie stars, film singers, you know, entertainers, uh, the Jews who own them basically will sell, sell them as prostitutes to billionaires and millionaires out there. Right. Because there'll always be someone who wants to sleep. Oh, I've seen her on TV. How much like a million, up, you know, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And, and we've seen images of, of men like Harvey Weinstein dragging young actresses around and, and compelling them to, to, frolic with him there are memes that are made about that that we have at christagenia somewhere
1: yeah if you want to be in the latest jew film well it comes with a price right
0: absolutely if you want to be a star it comes with a price And, and these people covet worldly riches and and they want to be famous and and that's how they end up on a casting couch And I would bet that every Hollywood star, I don't care if they're male, female, I don't care how macho they appear to be. Every Hollywood star the last hundred years has probably been on a casting couch. I would bet because those Jews in Hollywood, they don't need you. No matter how pretty you are or, or how, quote unquote, talented you might be, they don't need you. They can make anybody a star. Look at the proof of that is all around us. Look at these ugly, untalented, insipid bastards that are populating the television screen today. They can make anybody a star. Okay, that's a rant. Continuing once again, we're still speaking of those enemies of ancient Israel For their vine is of the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah. Their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. Their wine is the poison of dragons, and the cruel venom of asps, serpents. Is not this laid up in store with me, and sealed among my treasures? To me belongs vengeance and recompense. Their foot shall slide in due time, for the day of their calamity is at hand, and the things that shall come upon them make haste. And here we see that the Song of Moses, which is going to be sung at some point in the future at least, future from the time when John wrote the Revelation sings of the vengeance by which Yahweh God has promised to avenge his people in many of the other books of the prophets and especially in Revelation chapters 19 and 20. So not only can't it be imagined that the song is speaking of some other Israel, but we also cannot imagine that the enemies of God are somehow different people than those who were his enemies in the time of Moses. The song, which was true at the time of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32, must be just as true when the fulfillment of Revelation chapter 15 manifests itself, which must be at least some point future from the time of Christ. Continuing once again from verse 36 of Deuteronomy chapter 32. For Yahweh shall judge his people and repent himself for his servants when he sees that their power is gone. And there is none shut up or left when white people no longer have power in the world. And he shall say, where are other gods, their rock in whom they trusted? In other words, all the idols won't help us. All the idols will not help the children of Israel in the time of their calamity. Which did eat the fat of their sacrifices and drink the wine of their drink offerings. Let them rise up and help you and be your protection. That's a challenge because our false gods and our idols are not going to help us. They will never help us because they're not really gods. See now that I, even I, am he and there is no God with me. Now that goes right hand in hand with all the messianic prophecies of Isaiah, which state basically the same thing, speaking of Christ. I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal, neither is there anyone that can deliver out of my hand, as Christ also said that no one can pluck his people from the hand of his father. Here it is absolutely clear that this song being sung at the time of Moses and at the time of which Christ had prophesied in a revelation, the subject, in this song, the subject's, must be the same children of Israel. As the purpose outlined in the song is to celebrate the reconciliation of those same children of Israel to Yahweh their God and to get them to admit the error of their idolatry. And now where the song finishes, it speaks once again of vengeance. So for the last few verses of the song, verses 40 through 43. For I lift up my hand to heaven to say, I live forever. If I wet my glittering sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will render vengeance to my enemies and will reward them that hate me and reward them with punishment or with destruction. I will make mine arrows drunk with blood, and my sword shall devour flesh, and that with the blood of the slain and of the captives, from the beginning of revenges upon the enemy. Rejoice, O ye nations, now the King James Version has with, and we will address that. Rejoice, O ye nations, with his people. For he will avenge the blood of his servants and will render vengeance to his adversaries and will be merciful unto his land and to his people. Singing the song of Moses in Revelation chapter 15, the vengeance celebrated by Moses must also be the same vengeance prophesied in the surrounding passages of the Revelation. While the King James Version very often translated the Hebrew word for nation, which is goy, or goyim in the plural, as Gentile. Here in verse 43, in this context, such a translation is particularly absurd, because here the word can only signify the nations or tribes of the children of Israel. So the KJV rendered it as nations, rather than as, as, as Gentiles, here in the Song of Moses. Furthermore, the word with was added by the translators, and does not belong in the Hebrew text. It should say, or it does not exist in the Hebrew text, so it doesn't belong in the text. It should say, Rejoice, O ye nations, his people, as it is addressing only the children of Israel. Quite strangely, as we shall see, where Paul Tarsus cited this same verse in his epistle to the Romans, rather than writing nations as they did here, the translators of the King James Version wrote Gentiles, as though the meaning had somehow changed. So that's patently dishonest to me. After the song, we read, And Moses came and spake all the words of the song in the ears of the people, he and Hosea the son of Nun. And Moses made, and and that's obviously perhaps a scribal error for Joshua, And Moses made an end of speaking all these words to all Israel. And he said unto them, Set your hearts unto all the words which I testify among you this day, which ye shall command your children to observe, to do. All the words of this law, because the Song of Moses is one of the final chapters in Deuteronomy. As Christ had said in his own last instructions to his disciples, In John 14 and also a little later, if you love me, keep my commandments. This song of Moses sings of the love which Yahweh God has for the children of Israel, of their disobedience and ultimate punishment, and of his final destruction of his enemies and his mercy upon Israel, by which they may be reconciled to him. This is the entire story of the Bible or the story of the entire Bible, and there is no other song of Moses with any other meaning which the children of Israel could possibly This leads us to our next proof. As Paul of Tarsus had cited this very song, not only in chapter 10 of Romans, but in another context in Romans chapter 15. So now we shall make an assertion, but I don't know if you have any interjection or response to
1: when when you say the song would be a testament against them that means that if they suffered punishment you know many generations later and then uh they die and then they face uh christ in the resurrection and and they start moaning and complaining how hard life was well then they would have this testimony right that they this is why it all happened because they they disobeyed yahweh right it's and also in in their life if they're um you know, praying to God and complaining—it's all because of this, right? Is—is is that what I—what it means by a testimony against them?
0: Well, well, yes, that is what it means. That this is why you're suffering because this is what your ancestors did, and this is what you're doing with your idolatry. And it's not only in the resurrection. This is Revelation chapter fifteen, are the seven last plagues that would come upon men before the return of Christ and his execution of vengeance before his enemies, these seven last plagues are with us today. This is the notice right now that this Song of Moses, this is what's happening to us today. So I don't know how many people are going to hear this, but we all need to hear it. All of the children of Israel, all of the people of the the descended from the white nations of Europe today need to hear this. That this is why we are suffering today. This Song of Moses is putting us on notice now. And if we don't cease from our idolatry and, and continue in it, well, other prophecies inform us that we are going to suffer further and further punishment. Until we die along with the goat nations. Come out of Babylon lest she suffer her punishments. And that's why we see the song of Moses before this this seventh seal is opened, I believe, if I could put it that way. In Revelation chapter 15, in Revelation chapter At the end of Revelation chapter 15, after the children of Israel are seen as singing the song of Moses, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no man was able to enter into the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were fulfilled. And immediately after, Revelation chapter 16, verse 1, we see the seven angels told to go their way and pour out the vials of wrath, the wrath of God upon the earth. And that's what we're suffering from today. I can't establish that here. That's why I have a revelation commentary, which I pray establishes that.
1: But ultimately, when Babylon falls, that's when all hell breaks loose and you better get, a, get out of a territory swarming with nicks, right? Because you're, you're going to die, basically.
0: Well, well, that goes back to that same reason for sanctity, for, for recognizing that we are supposed to be a separate people, come out from among them and be separate come out of her my people lest ye suffer her punishments it's the same call it's the same call which we've been which we've had from the beginning it's the same sanctification and separation which the song of moses warns about it hasn't changed understanding the song of moses is crucial to understanding what's going on in the world today. And that's why the Song of Moses is also the Song of the Lamb. Because Christ hasn't changed. He's God. He's God incarnate. God has not changed. Okay, I'm preaching instead of explaining, I guess. Paul of Tarsus sings the Song of Moses. That's our assertion. That Paul wasn't changing anything. In Romans chapter 15, Paul of Tarsus was attesting to the substance of the ministry of Christ, where he wrote, Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision, because he was born under the law, born of a woman, born of the flesh of of the descendants of David, as he was prophesied. Was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promises made under the fathers. And that the Gentiles, now, of course, that word should say nations wherever it appears, because Paul is not speaking about non Israelites, and that the nations might glorify God for his mercy. What mercy? the mercy which the children of Israel required, and were promised in Jeremiah. Only the children of Israel were ever promised the mercy of God. That is found in the opening verses of Jeremiah chapter 31. There is no other promise of mercy to any other people. For this cause, I will confess to thee among, and here's that word again, Gentiles, where it should say nations, and sing unto thy name. And again, he says, rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And Paul wrote with, and I'll explain that, but that is a direct citation from this song of Moses from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And again, praise ye the Lord, all ye Gentiles or nations, and loud him, all ye people. And again, Isaiah says, there shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the nations. In him shall the nations trust. And I know the King James Version has Gentiles in those places also. But the word translated as Gentiles in verses 9 through 12 should have been translated as nations, which is the true meaning of the Greek word. As the citations from the prophets, which they contain, address only the nations of Israel and not any other nations, as the denominational churches wrongly perceive the term Gentiles to designate. It doesn't even mean that in Latin. It does not have the meaning which the churches claim that it has in Latin. In Latin, it actually means to describe somebody of the same race or family. Now, the fact that this word should be nations and not Gentiles is especially true where verse 10 is a direct quote from the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 32. However, in the corresponding chapter where the King James Version has nations for the plural term goyim, here it has Gentiles for the plural form of the Greek word ethnos, which literally means nations. It doesn't mean Gentiles. The word should have been translated as nations In this passage, also, if they were going to translate it as nations in Deuteronomy, chapter 32, verse 43, it should have been translated as nations here and not as Gentiles. But they translated it one way in one place and one way in another place.
1: Yeah, and that really exposes them, right? I wonder if on any times they went back and thought, hang on, we've translated this as Gentiles here. We have to go back to the Old Testament and change it to Gentiles as well. I wonder if that ever happened on, on any verses not, and they realized it's that, right?
0: obvious that they didn't do it. I mean, it's the same word, goyim is the same word that appears where Yahweh promised Sarah, there are two goyim in thy womb, and the King James translators wrote nations. Why didn't they, why, why didn't they write Gentiles? Why didn't Yahweh tell Sarah, or, or, I'm sorry, it wasn't Sarah. It was Rachel. No. I'm really screwed up. It was Rebecca, the wife of Isaac. <laughs> Rebecca. There are two Gentiles in thy womb. Why didn't Yahweh tell her that? There are two Gentiles in thy womb. So there are no Jews in her womb, right? <laughs> the truth is the Edomites were in there, and they were going to become the Jews. No. The, 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 there are two nations in thy womb, distinguish. Israel and Edom, or Jacob and Esau. So there are many places where if we accept the King James Version translations of, of Goyim as Gentiles, that where we apply it elsewhere in Scripture, the same word, the same translation, it just creates absurdities. And in truth, the King James Version was very selective, as to where they translated it as nations, or it was often very selective, and where they translated it, the word as Gentiles, because they didn't care about the truth. They only cared about upholding the doctrines of the Anglican Church from their perspective, and they were blind to their identity as Israel. They were blind to that. They accepted the Jewish paradigm, and, and, and the Jewish identity, claims to their identity as Israel, which is a lie. Okay. So let us examine Paul's reference to the Song of Moses in the context of other passages, the other passages which he also cited here. First, in Romans chapter 15, verse 8, he attested that Christ had come to confirm the promises made to the fathers. There are no promises made to the fathers concerning salvation or any hope for so-called Gentiles in the Old Testament. But in Luke chapter 1, we see a reference to the same promises as well as to the same vengeance described in the Song of Moses, which states, concerning the purpose of the coming of Christ, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. As he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, that we should be saved from our enemies, and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham. If that's the purpose of Christ, outlined in Luke chapter 1, then that is the reason for the ministry of Christ. And there is no other reason. There's no other reason given in the prophets, period. Then in Romans chapter 15, verse 9, after explaining that... Paul cites a passage from a Song of David found in both 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, chapter 22, verse 50, and Psalm 18, verse 49. From Psalm 18, from the New American Standard Bible, which does not abuse the Hebrew word meaning nations as much as the King James Version, I should say quite as much as the king james version does yahweh lives and blessed be my rock and exalted be the god of my salvation the god who executes vengeance for me and subdues peoples under me he delivers me from my enemies surely thou dost lift me above those who rise up against me thou dost rescue me from the violent man Therefore, I will give thanks to thee among the nations, O Yahweh, and I will sing praises to thy name. He gives great deliverance to his king and shows loving kindness to his anointed, to David and his descendants forever. David was promised that his seed would always rule over the children of Israel, and the children of Israel were prophesied to become many nations, as they were already Considered to be nations in the Song of Moses. Here, we see a promise of vengeance connected to the promises made to the fathers, just as we had seen in Luke chapter 1 and also in the Song of Moses. David is not changing the context of Scripture. David did not imagine him, even though other nations were subdued under him, because the children of Israel had failed to destroy those nations. David was not intended to be a ruler over those other nations. He was only intended to be a ruler over the children of Israel, their king, to be their king. Next, in Romans chapter 15, verse 10. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. And reading the word ethnos as nations, as it is in the corresponding passage of the King James Version from Deuteronomy, it would say, And again he saith, Rejoice ye nations with his people. Now the word with is expressed in the Greek of Paul's writing. In Greek, It is a verbatim citation from the Septuagint. In other words, Paul took it letter for letter from the Septuagint. He wasn't paraphrasing. It's an exact match to the Greek of the Septuagint. Where a word for with does appear. But there is no word for with in the corresponding Hebrew of Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 43. Furthermore, simply because it speaks of nations with his people. That does not mean that it refers to nations other than the nations of his people. There is no room for salvation for non-Israelites anywhere in the Song of Moses. Paul of Tarsus, singing the Song of Moses, within the context of Christ's having come to confirm the promises made to the fathers, is singing the same song of Moses which Moses had written. In Romans chapter 4, Paul had already explained that the seed of Abraham had, by his time, become many nations according to the promise made to Abraham, thus thy seed shall be. And that's exactly how Paul had written it. In the next verse, Romans chapter 15, verse 11. Paul offered another quotation from Scripture where he wrote, And again, praise the Lord, all ye Gentiles, or nations, and loud him, all ye people. This quote from Psalm 117, a psalm of only two verses, is Also exclusive to the children of Israel. So we will read it. Oh, praise Yahweh, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people. For his merciful kindness is great toward us. So who is all ye nations? It's us. And the truth of Yahweh endures forever. Praise ye Yahweh. So where it says, towards us, we can understand that both all ye nations, not Gentiles, as the King James Version has it there, and all ye people, are the same, a Hebrew parallelism. The people of Israel are the nations.
1: Right, and if we're celebrating at the end of time, how could there be um other races celebrating their destruction with us right that, that wouldn't then even then they haven't all been wiped out and and Yahweh or Christ has failed right, so it wouldn't make sense either they're all gone and and we're all singing uh you know the victory or, or they're not, and it's a failure right one or the
0: other well, well right absolutely and and going back to my assertion that David would rule over Israel, David only ruled over other nations, the Moabites, the Edomites, because he had to subdue them for the security of Israel. However, David was never their king. And the proof of that is the fact that as soon as the children of Israel had grown weak, And this is explained in the books of Kings and Chronicles. As soon as the children of Israel had grown weak, and it took 200 years, or 300 years in some cases, those other nations rejected the rule of Israel, threw off the shackle of the kings of Israel or Judah, and allied themselves with the Assyrians and Babylonians to destroy Israel. So even though David subdued other nations, he was never really their king. They just had no choice. They simply had no choice because Israel was much more powerful while it was in the favor of God. Once it fell out of the favor of God and, and was destined for captivity into Assyria and Babylon, those other nations immediately rejected the kings of Israel and Judah and allied themselves against them. Okay, so David was never really the king of other nations. Even though he was their de facto ruler, that doesn't mean that they would accept him as their king. They never did. They only subjected themselves to him because he conquered them and he was much more powerful. So they had no choice. Finally, in Romans chapter 15 and verse 12, we read, And again, Isaiah says, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the, and and of course the King James Version has Gentiles, but it should be nations, in him shall the nations trust. Here Paul is citing Isaiah chapter 11 specifically from verses 1 and 10 of that chapter. So here we shall read the passage from the King James Version at greater length. We won't read the entire passage, but we need to see the context. Because Paul didn't quote these verses because it sounds cool. He was quoting these verses as he said, because Christ came to confirm the promises of the Father made to the fathers. So, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, as Paul had quoted, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the spirit of Yahweh shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Of course, this is a prophecy of Christ, who calls himself the branch of Jesse. I believe in the Revelation. Revelation. The spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh, and shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of Yahweh, and he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor, and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. And now we're going to move on to verse 10 so that we see the context. I read those first four verses only to see the context of the chapter, and that's the context in verse 10. And it shall, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles, now the King James Version has Gentiles there, or nations, seek. And here Paul was citing the Septuagint, which has trust rather than seek, right? And his rest shall be glorious, And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people. This is what that end sign is supposed to do, is to recover the remnants of Israel. And it shall come to pass in that day that Yahweh shall set his hand again the second time because he had done it from Egypt, right? to recover the remnant of his people, which shall be left. He had already done it in the exodus from Egypt. From Assyria, and from Egypt, and from Pathros, and from Cush, and from Elam, which is Persia, and from Shinar, and from Hamath. Shinar is Babylonia. and from It's an ancient name for Babylonia. And from Hamath, which is northern Syria, which is the ancient city of Abraham, And from the islands of the sea, and he shall set up an ensign for the nations. I'm sorry, Hamath is the ancient northernmost point of the kingdom of Israel under David. Haran is the ancient city of Abraham, and that was a little further to the north and he shall set up an end sign for the nations, and that's Christ, and shall assemble the outcasts of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. So Paul is singing the song of Moses, and citing this as well, and this is the context which Paul had also cited the this passage and the song, these passages and the song of Moses, we know this is the context because Paul had said that Christ came to confirm the promises made to the fathers. So that's the context in which Paul sings the song of Moses. And there we see in Isaiah chapter 11, the King James Version, unjustly translated the same Hebrew root word, goyim, as Gentiles in verse 10, and then it correctly translated it as nations in verse 12 in verse 10 so it shall be so shall the gentiles seek in verse 12 it takes the same word and talks about an ensign for the nations so they can't even be consistent in one passage with the translation of this word as gentiles or nations because they are so badly desiring to uphold their false universalist doctrine. Sadly, Breton did the exact same thing with the equivalent Greek word ethnos in this chapter in his Septuagint translation. He followed the, the dishonesty of the King James. The ensign is Christ, and the promise is to regather the dispersed children of Israel from the ancient captivities. The nations which have expectation in Christ are those same children of Israel. Paul is telling the Romans that these these things and quoting these scriptures, which he says were written for our instruction in verse 4 of that same chapter, because he is relating the fulfillment of these promises. The regathering of the nations of the dispersed children of Israel in Christ. Nobody else has that promise. And for that reason, the apostles of Christ took the gospel of Christ to the white nations of Europe.
1: You wonder if uh, any of these translators ever like paused and wondered, oh, should it not just be nations when, when they translated that, right? But, but rarely um, do you have translators who are also uh well-learned and studied in the bible right usually it's one or the other right
0: right i mean they were that they were kind of learned men for their time if, if at least the translators that i i believe were but they all can't i don't know them all I, I don't know if there's a list of them all but i believe that they were also following jews for an understanding of the hebrew And then they had Jews with them so that they could understand the Hebrew. And it's right around the same time that the Jews began to get back into England. So if you wanted to know Hebrew, where would you turn? You would have to turn to Jews. I mean, that's the true predicament until this very day. It's very impossible. I'm not going to say it's impossible, but it's very difficult to learn Hebrew without making use of at least some Jewish resources. And the Jews have corrupted the language, but it's their influence which would lead you to translate certain things certain ways, especially if you believe their lie that they are the children of Israel, which they certainly aren't. So you're going to look for a place for yourself in the scriptures, and you're going to start translating that word nations as Gentiles. But that's not what it means. It's always referring to either the other Adamic nations in some contexts or to the children of Israel, unless it specifies nations of Canaan or some language like that. So, basically, Paul of Tarsus was singing the Song of Moses in connection, because he was quoting from the Song of Moses, in connection with the promise that Christ had come to confirm, the promises to the fathers. The Song of Moses is also the Song of the Lamb, and therefore the purpose of Christ is the same purpose which Yahweh had spelled out for the children of Israel in the Song of Moses, which would testify against them in the last days. So the children of Israel need to read the song of Moses to understand the history which we call Christian identity and they need to repent and separate themselves once again. And perhaps that's the role of 144,000, but I'm not going to be so vain as to make that assertion. You,
1: you mean uh, 144,000 CI preachers. <laughs> well,
0: yeah, Spreading we need that proof. many. We do. Singing
1: the song of song to our people, right?
0: Absolutely. We need that many. We do. Thank you. Thank you for being here. And yeah. we will resume next week.
1: Yep. As always, thanks for me, Bill. Praise Yahweh, God of Israel, God of European people. Thank you. Praise Yahweh. Good night.